Hi, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. So I'll give you a minute to get there. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you do, ask in my name. This I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again, Westside. We are so glad that you're here, and we are in our series, The Upper Room. And we are going through John chapter 13 through 17, which is known as the Upper Room Discourse. And I hope that you guys have gotten one of these bookmarks, and it, on the back of it, it has the Bible reading plan. And so it's broke down in such a way that on Monday you can read John chapter 13, Tuesday John chapter 14, so on and so on. And one of the reasons why this is so important is because you were able to live in that text. And then as we come here um, on Sundays and gather in and dive deeper, your heart and your mind is so in tune with what God is doing. But even more than that, these words that we have been studying and what Jesus is saying to his disciples is filled with so much good news. And so literally, no matter what's going on in your week or what's happening, you can bank on, if you're doing this Bible reading plan, that you can see these beautiful promises that Jesus is promising us. And, and just a review to catch you up, if you're wanting to know, hey, what's up, what's up with the upper room and what does that mean? Um, basically, in this series, we are asking this fundamental question. What are the marks of an upper room disciple? And by an upper room disciple, we mean that it was strictly just the 12 who were in this upper room with Jesus. And that's significant because Jesus had a lot of followers and actually many more disciples than just the 12. But, but as we saw in scripture, a lot of those disciples were only around for the benefits that Jesus offered them in their lives. But the upper room disciples weren't just in for the benefits, they were in for the belief and the relationship of Jesus. It's literally these 12 in this room who harness and carry the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Literally, these 12 took on such a responsibility that we're in Butler County, Popper Bluff, Missouri, in 2022, studying the words of Jesus because they lived out this mission. 
And, and if you see behind me, we've been walking through what these marks are. We learned that the first one was humble in service. That the mark of an upper room disciple is someone who serves in humility. And then the second mark was really positive. We said that an upper room disciple is honest about sin, right? But we said this, anytime we talk about sin, we do talk about the severity of it, yes. But we also talk about the beautiful mercy and grace that God offers sinners as well. The third mark was healthy in community. And we looked at Jesus having all of these relationships. And what does it look like to have a healthy relationship? And, and how do we do that? And this week, as you see, it says that an upper room disciple is hopeful in heart. But, but maybe as an introduction, I want to set up sort of where we're going today. Um, if you know anything about me, you know that I love reading, and I love reading history in particular. Um, one of the, my favorite guys is Billy Graham, is a big legacy in our family. My father was saved watching a Billy Graham crusade. My middle name is Graham. We carried on uh, that middle name with one of our children as well. So I try to read any sort of biography that I can on Billy. And one of the best is Billy's autobiography, which is entitled Just As I Am. And it's incredible to see the life that this man lived. This man met with every president from Harry Truman all the way to Donald Trump. I mean, that, I mean, to, that history span is unbelievable to think about. But there's one story that Billy records that no one knew, not even Ruth Graham, his wife, until he published the book. And it deals with when Billy went over in the early 1950s and held a crusade in London. And he did it in the big um, Herringay arena there. It was such a big deal that to this day, the only person to um, sell out the Herringay Stadium that many consecutive nights is Adele. I mean, that's pretty crazy to think about. They had planned a five-night revival. That's it, five nights. And the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association stayed there for 12 weeks. It was such an incredible revival. To this day, the Church of England records there have never been in the history of the Church of England more people enroll in seminary than after this crusade, fulfilling the call to ministry. When Billy was over there, he met with everybody, including Queen Elizabeth herself. But, the story that he tells in Just As I Am is not about Queen Elizabeth, but it is about the Prime Minister, Winston Churchill himself. The story is so incredible, I just want to read it to you straight from Billy's autobiography, and it says this. I received a call from Jack Colville, secretary to the Prime Minister. Sir, would you be available to join Mr. Churchill for lunch tomorrow at noon? I'm so honored, I said, but unfortunately that's impossible. We are leaving this evening for Scotland, turning down an invitation from Winston Churchill. That showed how busy I really was. Half an hour later, the phone rang again. 
Would you be able to meet with Mr. Churchill today at noon, he said. He has a lunch scheduled at 12.30 with the Duke of Windsor. How crazy is that? The Duke of Windsor. But he can see you before that. I hardly had time to get nervous. And much later in Mr. Colville's writings that Mr. Churchill had himself been nervous about the meeting as well. Apparently, the prime minister paced up and down the hallway saying, what do you talk about to an evangelist? When I arrived at Downing Street, I was reminded discreetly that the prime minister had precisely 20 minutes to the dot for this meeting. I was shown into a large, dimly lit room. Mr. Churchill rose from his chair and shook my hand. Imagine that scene. You go into a room and there's Winston Churchill. He arose and shook my hand. I had not realized how short and chubby of a man he was. <laughs> he motioned with an unlit cigar for me to sit next to him. I would be, it would be just the two of us, apparently. I noticed that three London Times newspapers were spread out on the table next to him. Well, first, he said, in his marvelous, booming voice that filled the room, I had heard so many times on the radio in the newsreels, I want to congratulate you for the huge crowds that you have been drawing there at the Herringay. Oh, well... It is God's doing, Mr. Churchill. Believe me, I said. That may be so, young boy, he replied. But I dare say that if I brought Marilyn Monroe over here and she and I together went to the Herringay, we would not fill the stadium ourselves. Tell me, Reverend Graham, what is it that fills that stadium night after night well, Mr. Churchill, I think it is the gospel of Christ, I told him without hesitation. People are hungry to hear the word straight from the Bible. Almost all of the clergy of this town used to preach the gospel. but I believe that they have gotten away from it. Yes, he said, sighing. Things have changed tremendously Look at these newspapers. Nothing but murder and war and the communists. You know, the world may be one day be taken over by this regime. I agreed with him, but I did not feel free to comment about the world politics. I merely nodded and continued. I tell you, Mr. Churchill said, I have no hope. Mr. Graham, I see no hope for the world. Things do look dark, I agreed. I hesitated, not wanting to repeat what I had already said to someone else a few days earlier. We talked at length about the world situations and then on cue, the prime minister looked me directly in the eye and said, I am a man without hope, 
Mr. Graham, and then Winston Churchill, the prime minister of England, looked me in the eye and said, do you have any real hope for me? (sighs) Imagine that. This man is the single force standing up against Hitler and a world war. He is the second most powerful man in the nation at this time. And he looks directly at Billy Graham and says, I have no hope, but do you? This is why I love Billy. He might have been talking geopolitically, but it sounded to me like it was a personal plea. In the notes I jotted down after the meeting, I recall that he referred to hopelessness no fewer than nine times. I had learned that his bouts with depression are now well documented, although I was not aware of them at the time. And I looked the prime minister right in the eye, and I said, Mr. Churchill, Are you without hope for your own soul's salvation? Yes. Leave it to a country preacher, Billy Graham. Frankly, I think about that a great deal, he replied. And I had my New Testament with me. Knowing that we had but a few minutes left, I opened that Bible and I explained the way of salvation and I watched carefully for signs of any irritation or any offense, but I noticed that he seemed receptive, if not even enthusiastic, which is remarkable because Winston Churchill is not enthusiastic about anything. I talked about God's plan for the future and his eyes seemed to light up. At 12.30, Mr. Colville knocked on the door. Sir Winston, the Duke of Windsor is here for your luncheon, sir. And Mr. Churchill growled, let him wait. (laughs) Mr. Colville went off. I went on for another 10 or 15 minutes. Then I asked if I could pray. Most certainly, he said, standing up, I would appreciate it. I prayed for the difficult situations that the prime minister faced every day and acknowledged that God was the only hope for not only the world, but for his own soul. Mr. Churchill thanked me, and he walked me out. And as he shook my hands, he leaned towards me and said, Our conversations are private, aren't they, Mr. Graham? To which I replied, Oh, yes, sir. Nobody knew the story until Billy wrote it. It's incredible. A man who symbolizes power, confidence, all of those things. And in that moment, he was a broken man. And a southern evangelist from South Carolina gave him hope. What does that have to do with today? I dare say that the same hope that Reverend Billy Graham spoke to the prime minister of England is the very same hope that Jesus Christ offers to you today. It's the same hope. Nothing has changed in that message. 
And in our text today, I love that Jesus is so tender in his words. If you back up and understand the context, he's, he's washed their feet. He's got into kind of a semi-argument with Peter, if you remember that. And then remember, the whole thing with Judas went down. Judas has now left the room. All the disciples know what's going on. Then Jesus tells Peter, you're going to betray me. And Peter is just flabbergasted. I am not going to betray you. And Jesus says, the rooster will crow three times. There is anxiety. There is tension in the air. I mean, this meal has turned awkward now. And Jesus breaks the silence with verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. It's so beautiful. The word troubled means anxiety, torn, downcast, agitated, anxious, all of those things. The disciples had much to be anxious about. But Jesus tenderly speaks to them and says, let not your hearts be troubled. I just want to ask you this question today, and I want you to lean in. Um, I want to ask you this question. What's troubling your heart today? Please lean in. Don't put it on the back burner. The very thing that you were trying to block out of your mind as you were walking into the building today so you thought you could focus during worship, what if, what if that's the very place that Jesus wants to meet you at? I don't know if it's a doctor's report. I don't know if it's a family, if it's finance. I I don't know. But I know this, in a room this size with this many people, many of us, have not gotten any sleep this past week because when we lay down on that pillow and our mind begins to spin and the anxiety fills our heart, that very thing is the thing that Jesus wants to speak to today. That's the thing. And so what do we do from there? Well, I think the big idea really today is this. How can we live and recognize that but have hope? Upper room disciples are hopeful in heart when we hold on to the promises of God. When we hold on for dear life, the promises of God, the boldness that we would have to the same thing, the same hope that Billy Graham spoke to Winston Churchill is the very same hope that Jesus speaks to us today. But I think there's a tension here. I don't think we have a correct view of what hope even is. We think that our troubles and the thing that's crushing us far outweighs any hope. And I think the reason why is because we don't understand what true biblical hope is. Here's a few things that hope is not. Hope is not a wishful maybe. It breaks my heart when I have conversations with Christians and we talk about salvation and we talk about heaven, which even Jesus speaks of in this text. And I say, do you have the hope of heaven? And their reply is, I hope someday I may go to heaven. 
Listen to me. That is not the kind of hope that the Bible is offering to you. That is a wishful maybe. Or this, hope is not a cheesy motivation. You're not downcast and your heart and mind are troubled and you are to the point of despair. And then somebody walks along like a bobblehead and said, all things work together for good for God who loved those who are called according to his purpose. Just pray it away. I will punch you in the throat. In the name of Jesus. That is not... That is not what the Bible, that's not what this is. Listen, Christianity is not some self-help motivation. I believe that Christianity has a biblical worldview in the sense that it is the only logical train of thought that can recognize the real brokenness. I'm talking the real brokenness of what the world is, but at the same time offer a real truth for that brokenness. And then the last thing, hope is not a magic medicine. Hope is not a thing that when all of a sudden you go, I have hope, and now your heart's not troubled and zap, everything is, you know, sugar plum fairies or something. It's not that. So what is hope? We've got to have a working definition for it. Words matter. Here's how we've always defined hope here. Hope is the confident expectation that what God has said will happen. That's hope. Every word matters in that sentence. Hope is the confident. You can take this to the bank. The confident expectation that we are holding out, that what we see is not the last word. Hope is the confident expectation that what God has said. It's the promises of God. It's the words of God. What you need today is not some insight from Jason or just some quote from Charles Spurgeon. What you need today is thus saith the Lord. What has God said? That it will happen. Everything hinges on will happen. So if this is true and our hearts are still troubled, do you know where I think the disconnection is? We don't know what God has said. If we don't have hope and we can't see it in this scenario of the confident expectation of what God has said will happen, if we don't have hope, then we have to know what God has said. And what has God said? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Because in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14, listen, I see seven radical promises from Jesus. I'm talking, there's no way that that can even be real or true. That God is promising to you today. So listen, I'm going to fly through these, but I want you to have that thing that's troubling your heart that's keeping you up at night, that fills you with anxiety when that person is in the room because things still aren't okay and people don't actually realize how bad the marriage really is and you feel like you're getting ready to break. I want that right out in front. 
And then today, with, I feel like I almost have like a gospel gun today of like good news. We're going to fire these promises at that thing. And we are going to have faith that, listen, I believe God can change your life today. I believe that the hopelessness and the darkness that fills your heart and mind can be, can be banished with the light of the promises of God. So what does God promise? What has he said? The first thing is this. We have hope when we believe in Jesus. That's step number one. You've got to believe in Jesus. Look at what he says right there in verse one. Let not your hearts be troubled. Okay. It's a lot easier said than done. How, Jesus? Believe in God. Believe also in me. The translation is, is a little clunky from the original. What he's really saying is this. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, so you should also believe in me. That's what he's saying. What Jesus is saying is you have two choices every day of your life, and it's only two choices. Don't try to justify it. Don't try to make it three all you have are two choices. You can either believe in yourself or you can trust in Jesus. That's it. That's all you've got. No matter how you try to word the first one, oh, it's not me, I'm not, no, no, no. You either trust in yourself or you trust in Jesus. Do you know um, in the New Testament, the word believe can be translated a number of ways. But the word that's probably the closest to the original meaning of the word believe is the word rest. And when you throw that word into the verse, let not your hearts be troubled, rest in God, rest also in me, it changes everything. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to find safety. We're trying to find rest because the finances, because the relationship, because the doctors. I'm trying to cling to something. And I'm here to tell you today that anything else that you cling in other than Jesus Christ will crumble and fall. But Jesus is the solid rock. We have hope and we believe in Jesus. Number two, it's this. We have hope. Because Jesus has great plans for our future. Look at verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? This is one of the most central teachings when Jesus is speaking of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Now, Hallmark and cheesy Christian stuff has really affected our view of heaven. But look at what he says. In my father's house are many rooms, mansions type of a mindset. And Jesus is saying that he's going and he's preparing this place for you. I had this thought this week. Imagine right now in your mind the most beautiful place that you've ever been to here on earth. Or maybe one of the most beautiful pictures you've ever seen from the Hubble telescope or something like that. A mountain range, the ocean, a sunrise, a sunset, whatever it is. That beautiful experience that blew your doors off, God made in seven days. Now, Jesus says heaven is a place that he's been preparing and building since he got back. Yeah. 
how incredible is that place going to be? And remember, Jesus, while he lived on this earth, was a carpenter. He built things. And now he's gone before us into heaven and is preparing a place for us. Listen, when you understand the troubles and the turmoil that you have in this life, that's why the Apostle Paul would say, the sufferings of this present world pale in comparison of the glory that is to come. How could every one of these apostles in this room die a violent death, stoned to death, beat to death, crucified upside down, boiled in a vat of oil? How could they do that? Because they understood no matter what was happening in the present, their future far outweighed that. And what's the application to our life now? That we can face suffering because we know our future. No, listen, no matter what happens in the thing that's troubling your heart, no matter what that outcome is, and listen, can I just say something today? A lot of times um, preachers and churches will lie to you and try to spin it positive. You know, every time God closes a door, he opens a window. Sometimes God will close the door and burn the house to the ground because that was a bad decision that you made. Okay? It might turn out worse than what you had imagined. But I'm here to tell you that that is just a moment compared to all of eternity. And that when you put the thing that's troubling your heart up to the glories of heaven that are in store for you, that's what gives us faith to continue on. We have hope because Jesus has incredible plans for our future. The third thing that I see is this. We have hope because Jesus is coming back for us. Look at what he says. It's right there. Verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Listen, any time. This is a great way to study your Bible. Anytime you see God or Jesus in the Gospels say this phrase, I will, you need to circle that and you need to write in your margin, hope. That's where I got the definition of hope from. Hope is the confident expectation that what God has said will happen. I'll never forget we had some family plans and the kids were going to go somewhere, and I was going to meet up with them after. But at that moment, they didn't know I was going to meet up with them after. They thought they just were going to have to go, and Mom and I weren't going to be there. We were going to meet up with them after the event had took place. And so finally, Roman was kind of putting up a little bit of a fight, and then I just I said, listen, dude, here's the plan. For goodness sake, here's the plan, okay? We're doing this, we're doing this, and then Mom and I are going to come, we're going to get you guys, and he goes, oh. You guys are going to get us after? I was like, yeah, bub, we're coming back to get you after. Oh, well, great. Right? It's like, awesome. We had World War III in our house for 45 minutes, right? Dawned on them. They're coming back. Listen, the New Testament writes in such a way that we should live every day of our life as if it is the day that Jesus Christ will return. 
For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion unto the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Two options. You either pass from this life and go see Jesus, or Jesus splits that sky open and comes back and makes every wrong right again. We have hope that Jesus is coming back again. Number four is this. We have hope because Jesus has opened the way to God. This might be probably one of Jesus' most famous I am statements. Look at what it says in verse five and six. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. I love this conversation. I almost like in my mind hear Thomas be like, Lord, no, we don't know the place that you're going. Because every time we ask you a question, you always respond with a question or some like parable thing or like, dude, can you break this down for us? We do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Did you know that John chapter 14, verse 6 is the watershed moment for many people in their life? Why? Because in this single statement, Jesus has said, there are not many ways to God. There is one, and it is through the person of Jesus Christ. That is an offensive statement. Because in the same breath, what the Bible is saying, not Jason, what the Bible is saying in that moment is that all other false religions are false. But listen, that's, the, that's not a baseball bat to beat people over the head with. What that is, is every time I leave Walmart and you see on the side of the doors the missing persons pieces of paper, have you seen that? The wall is filled and it's children, and all of that. When I see Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, what I see is almost our heavenly Father standing on the front porch like the prodigal son, yelling out, son or daughter, come home. Jesus is the way home. Find Jesus and you find the way home. It is a loving call to come back home. So what are we trying to say? Listen, it should not be shocking that there is only one way to God. What should be shocking is that there is even a way to God. Why don't we talk about that? Everyone tries to say it's so offensive that there's only one way. I do understand that. But first, how can we get past the point that a holy, righteous, and perfect God has made a way back to himself? That broken sinners can find the way. Which leads me to this. The gospel is offensive. Not in who in it excludes, but in who it lets in. Grace is offensive. And, and see, people who are Pharisees, they, they struggle with that. 
Because um, I don't know, should, should that person be doing that? I mean, I, don't, I, went to, I went to high school with them, and I know they've struggled. In the, I mean, I'm not judging, I'm not judging, I'm not judging, I'm not judging. I'm just saying, like, you know, I mean, you know, like, oh, what they did, and then the stuff. And listen, here's how radical the gospel is. The gospel is not that you are just forgiven. That's only like half of it. The gospel isn't that you're just forgiven. The gospel is that you are forgiven and rewarded. Forgiveness says you're free to go. All of your debts have been paid. But justification and righteousness says, come in, son or daughter. All that I have is now yours. That when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin and he doesn't see your failures and he doesn't see your past. When God looks at you, he sees a son or a daughter bought with the blood of Jesus Christ and he sees a glorious future. This is good news. We have hope because Jesus has made the way to God. It is not that there's many ways up this mountain, and then when we get up to the mountain, there's God. Christianity says God has come down the mountain to find you. And we have hope in this because it doesn't depend on us. God has done it for you in Christ. We have hope because Jesus has opened the way to God. Number five, we have hope because God is like Jesus. Oh, this is so good. Look at what these verses say. If you have known me, you would have known my father also. Because Thomas says, just, just show us the father, God. Show us, the, show us God the father, Jesus, and that will be enough. And Jesus says, Thomas, have I not been with you long enough? That if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. By the way, this is what got Jesus killed. Have you ever thought about that? Why was Jesus crucified on a cross? Was it because he made a blind man see? Or he like raised Lazarus from the dead? Imagine trying to like be angry about that. Come on, guys. That Jesus guy just raised Lazarus from the dead. What? Are you kidding me? No way. We can't have somebody resurrecting people from the dead. Are you kidding me? That's ridiculous, right? What got Jesus killed? Is Jesus said that he was God in the flesh. And that is what got him crucified because the Pharisees said that is blasphemous. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Why is that significant? Why is it significant to have hope that God is like Jesus? Oh, man, listen. Because whenever you sin grievously in your life and you've done that thing that you thought you would never do and that you've even talked to other people and said, I can't believe they did that. I would never do that. That moment when you were at your rock bottom and then we read the Gospels and we see, man, I wonder how Jesus would 
respond to sexual immorality. And we see Jesus interacting with the woman at the well or the woman caught in the act of adultery. And we see him speak truth and tell them to go and sin no more, but also grace that nobody's there to judge them anymore. We say, I know how God's responding to me in my situation because God is like that. When we see Jesus touch the, I'm preaching and y'all just sitting there. Listen, when we see Jesus touch the leper, the outcast, the dirty, we see that God is loving like that and it doesn't bother him to be around unclean people. When we see Jesus eat dinner with Matthew, tax collectors and prostitutes, we say God loves to be around broken people. That's why it's so important to know our Gospels and to read the Bible because God is like Jesus. Please listen to me. In this room today, you do not have the authority or the audacity to say, well, I don't know what God is like. Because Colossians chapter 1, in him, in Jesus, the fullness of God dwelt. Everything that we need to know about God the Father has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And we have hope because of that. Number six, we have hope because Jesus will do even greater things through us. This is crazy. This is nuts. I read this this week and was like, I'm going to be honest, don't believe that, right? Look at what he says right here in verse 12. Truly, truly, I felt like he started the sentence with that because he knew we would be like, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Here's where people get confused about this. People think like, well, if Jesus raised Lazarus, then I'm supposed to go around and raise 10 Lazaruses or something like that. We learned what Jesus is interested in is not just influence, but impact. Jesus wants to make a greater impact. And what he is saying is, as the disciples go and make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, the kingdom of God will keep spreading and keep spreading and keep spreading and keep spreading, and the capacity and the impact of it will become greater and greater and greater. This thing started out with just Jesus and a couple hundred people. And now today, in 2020, some billions of people claim the name of Jesus Christ because Jesus desires to do his work through us. Here's what I'm trying to say. The storyline of the Bible is this. You can sum it up just like this. God for us, God with us, God in us, God through us. It's the whole Bible. God for us, God with us, God in us. God through us. So listen, when it comes to doing these works, the question is not one of ability. Newsflash, God doesn't need your ability, okay? It is not one of abilities, but our availabilities. God is willing and eager more than we could realize to do his works through us. 
The question is not, are we able? It's not about you. It's about God working through you. The question is, is, is this, are we even slowing down enough to hear God's voice? Number six was, we have hope because Jesus will do even greater things. And the last one is this. What a way to end. We have hope because Jesus answers our prayers. What? Look at what he says. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I will do it. So when our prayer ministry meets from 8.15 to 9.15 back there in that back room and they're on their knees and they're praying for families and they're praying for prayer requests, they are not praying some magical hope so. They are praying with a certainty that the God that created the cosmos hears and answers our prayers. And what's this thing about in Jesus' name? Right? Have you ever had to get something notarized before? Like one time I had to send some papers off and I had to get them notarized and I didn't. And I mailed them off and they came back and it said, you have to get this notarized because of authority and this, that, and the other. And so you take it to a notary and you do it and then they send it off and do it and it makes it official in all of that sense. What Jesus is saying is my name is the access to God the Father. It is notarized, it is signed, it is sealed, and it is delivered. And when we pray, we pray with a confidence knowing that the God God of the universe hears our prayers. What about this? I think God is more willing to answer our prayers than we are to even ask. That's how willing God is. In closing, as the band comes and leads us in a time of response, I was just so overwhelmed at this passage this week. Just, I mean, boom, 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 promise after promise. Um, remember the thing that I asked you about? What's been troubling you? Your marriage, your health, your finance, I don't know what it is, but I asked you to kind of hold that out front. I remember hearing a story about a dear black preacher who had such great problems and he was so troubled in his heart that every day he found himself praying to God about his troubles. He would say, oh God, my troubles are so big. Oh, God, I've got this. Oh, God, I've got that. And just day after day after day, he prayed to God about his troubles. And then one day, he got so sick and tired of mentioning his troubles that he began to pray to his troubles about God. And he said, oh, troubles, I have such a big God who is able to do far more than I would ask or think. And I'm asking you today that rather than being consumed by the thing that has made you anxious and weary and troubled in heart. Would you place that up front and then listen to this today? This is true. Jesus just said these things to us. Pastor Jason, my heart is troubled. I know, and it's so serious. 
But I'm telling you that today you have hope when you believe in Jesus. Today I am telling you that you have hope because Jesus has great plans for your future. I'm telling you today that you have hope because Jesus is coming back. I'm telling you today that you have hope because Jesus has opened the way to God. I'm telling you that you have hope today because God is like Jesus. I'm telling you that you have hope today because Jesus will do even greater works through your life. And I'm telling you that you have hope today because God answers your prayers. Look at this. This is available for you today, right now. And what if we took a cue from that preacher and instead of being so consumed about what troubles our heart, we lined those things up and we said, look at what God promises us today. Maybe in just a moment when we come forward for communion, maybe you just need to claim one of these. What is it for you today? What is it? Look at the list. What's the promise that God, through his spirit and through his word, is speaking to you right now, today. That's your word. Hold on to that. You have hope. Oh, please listen. Please look at me. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep fighting. Keep loving that man or loving that woman or loving that child. Keep praying about that doctor's report. Keep praying for that prodigal. Keep working on that job. Listen to me. Don't stop now. God has brought you too far. Don't stop now because these promises are yours in Christ. And maybe in just a moment, you just leave it here today. Before you come and get communion, you just go, that's my promise. I'm picking up that promise today and I'm leaving that trouble there. And then I pick up the body and the blood of Jesus. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you today and Holy Spirit, would you do something in this place? God, I'm, I have no interest in playing church. No interest in playing church today. Some of us in this room are dying. I haven't told anybody. What if today we just lay it down and we replace it with the promise and we say our God is more willing to do far what we could ever ask or think. Oh God, would you renew our hope in this place today? 1 Thessalonians 5.24 He who called you is faithful and he will surely do it. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, your labor is not in vain. Joshua 1, 9, be strong and courageous and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Exodus 14, 14, I am your God and I will fight for you. All you need be is silent and trust me. Oh God, do something in this room today and give us the courage and the boldness to act on it. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious and in the resurrected name of Jesus. Amen.